morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We continue on in our series in chapter 3. Our text this morning will be found in verses 20 through 30. Mark chapter 3, 20 through 30. It is great to see every one of you here. I see you got the, the, uh, the memo on the whole clock thing. Whose idea is that? Did you all get your corn planted this morning <laughs> or your cow's milk? I don't really entirely, I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. I'm sorry. I have been looking as far as us messing with the clock. Anyway, I'm glad you, hear, you are here. Um, it has been a delight to be away a little bit to get a break. I was at a conference um, down south, visited some family, spending time with my, my parents as well as uh, my father-in-law. I was able to check up on him while my wife and her mom, uh, Wendy and, and Grandma, were um, overseas in Africa checking up on family over there. So a lot of movement, but um, I am delighted to be back here. I missed you. I really did. Prayed for you on a regular basis. I, as you step away, as others step into the pulpit, we are just blessed as a church to have men step in and preach with such authority and clarity and boldness. And we praise God for that. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing at Big Woods as a whole. And, and I was thinking about it as I get reports and bits and pieces of information as I um, hit the ground running this past week. Um, babies, exciting. Baptisms, exciting. And, and budgets and buildings and all those things. You know why I'm excited? There's a little detail you probably would never even notice unless you look. Look at the back of your bulletin. Let me tell you why I am excited about what God is doing at Big Woods Bible Church. On Friday mornings, before the sun is up at 6 o'clock, people gather in homes to pray. And there were two groups originally, a men's group and a women's group. And then we added a third group, uh, two women's group and, and one men's group. And then over these past couple weeks, we've added a fourth group that is meeting, a second group of men meeting in another location uh, specifically to pray, to pray together. That's really what we are going to uh, do as we advance for the cause of the gospel in the community that God has called us to be a part. It's going to happen when we are together praying. I commend one of those four uh, locations to you to meet, to gather and pray. Begin your time in the in the Word with fellowship and accountability. A good cup of coffee, but but before the throne of grace in prayer. Um, that's how I know when there is more people praying in more locations that God will continue to bless His little work right here. That we have privilege having a little tiny part of what He is doing. Um, it seems like a little bit, it's hard to get back into the pulpit, so I will, I will need uh, prayers this morning. Um, so would you bow your heads, and we will pray together as we look into this amazing text, somewhat of a, of, a, of, a, of a complicated text, but by God's grace and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I trust there's a um, pertinent word for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and we are grateful for who you are. First and foremost, we recognize you as the sovereign ruler, the one who reigns over everyone and everything. We recognize, Lord, that in your grace and in your love and your mercy, 
You have offered a means and a way for us to have relationship with you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we claim his blood right now as our only, as our only way to have access to you and to the throne room of your grace. Father, this morning I am I am desperately reliant upon you and, and yet at the same moment gloriously reliant. And I thank you, Lord, for this body. I thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in our midst. Father, I pray, Lord, as we advance for the gospel in our community that you give to us clarity of thought and mind. Give to us a, a passionate love for you, for the word, uh, for people around us in our community. Uh, Father, help us even in this very moment as we now sit in your house on your day with your word open before us. Allow your Holy Spirit to come and to speak. Uh, Lord, please uh, guide my mouth and my mind that whatever is spoken would be for your glory and your honor. Uh, we just ask, Lord, that you'd be with uh, my brothers at this moment who are preaching in pulpits throughout our community, particularly that you would be close to them, empower them, and equip them in a unique way that together we understand the role that we have as followers of you, as called out once in a very important day, in a very important time. Uh, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for this time. Guide us now. We ask this precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. <clears throat> I was able to listen to the messages the man preached. Aaron talked on the antagonists of Jesus, and yet Jesus' clear plan, um, not missing a beat all the way through. Uh, last week, uh, Matt did an exceptional job and preached on the apostles of Jesus. It really felt as we got a, an individual glance, a look into the lives of each one of them. And today we, in a sense, return, if, if we could, through this particular text, to the subject of Jesus himself and our response, um, our heart reaction to this one. Um, that in all honesty, the subject of Jesus, the, the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, uh, if you talk with anyone in our world today, they still are, are somewhat confused. They're, they're not completely sure what to do with Jesus. Um, it's very, very obvious that his existence as far as a historical figure is really not argued. It's too well recorded. Uh, anyone, you would take even, even atheists and agnostics would claim that there was this historical figure, Jesus. He probably was a good teacher or even a great teacher. Uh, some people would claim that Jesus perhaps was a, was a prophet, but, but God himself, incarnate, God here in the flesh, uh, no, that's, 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 that's what you people may think but not everyone else. It just simply cannot be. The problem is, is that they still cannot explain away um, his teachings, the impact that he has had for literally, what, thousands, more than 2,000 years now. They, they cannot explain away his, his miracles. They cannot explain away his, his resurrection. He's too big, in a sense, to, to be confined into, into kind of our little tiny minds. I, I think of um, the Apostle John, and we were introduced to him last week. Uh, remember the Apostle John, the only disciple who was actually 
there to witness firsthand from what we understand the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, the one who was mandated to care for Jesus' own mother. The Apostle John who ran, he was the first one to the tomb. Peter was the first one in the tomb, but John was the first one to the tomb that resurrection morning. The Apostle John is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. No doubt had a close and a unique relationship. And yet John concludes his own gospel. I don't know if you pick up on this, but the very last verse of the entire gospel of John kind of summarizes what, what, what people have a hard time with. When it comes to Jesus, it says this, and I quote in John 21, verse 25. Now, there are many other things. The whole Gospel of John, the last verse. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In a sense, it's this idea that Jesus is too big. He doesn't entirely fit. Jesus' ministry is what? Bigger than we could ever imagine. Jesus' life is deeper and greater than we could ever imagine. Now, we've been trekking our way through what? The Gospel of Mark. And we have been looking at his ministry, the, the, the mission of Jesus, the message of Jesus. And as it continues to expand, we know, and we've seen this, particularly in Aaron's message a couple weeks ago, the, the, the collision of worldviews. There is what? There is, is opposition every single step of the way when it comes to Jesus. There is what? The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Very much like today. You have conversations with those who don't read the Bible, those who don't go to church, those who don't follow Jesus. And there's this colliding, asking the questions, really, who... Who is Jesus anyway? Who is, who is God? Which again lead to questions of what is, what is truth? What, what really matters in life? How can I really be certain? How, how should I live my life? Who has the right to tell me how I should live my life? Who should I listen to? Why should I listen to them? Let me tell you this morning as we dive into this, when it comes to understanding and articulating the gospel, it's actually referred to as what? As, as apologetics or defending what one believes. You ever notice that and there's some even amongst us this morning, individuals, some individuals seem wired for it. Inability to defend um, with the idea of apologetics the gospel. That in a sense, as, as the, the, the verbal debate heats up, it's almost as if their mind gets clearer. Some people are gifted for that. I think years ago, the Apostle Paul, we see his message in Acts, chapter 9. We see what? Apollos, a great orator and preacher, ability to defend the gospel. And later we have Justin Martyr, Augustine. And then there's Calvin and there's Luther. And, and years later there was C.S. Lewis. Today we have gifted minds, Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig and Tim Keller and Josh McDowell. They have minds that in a sense just respond with how we answer these questions of what do we do with Jesus? Why should we listen to him? We understand that Jesus was not necessarily one who debated. 
if you pick up on that. It doesn't mean that we do not respond with an authoritative view, but if you examine the way that Jesus responded to his critics, he, didn't really, he never really argued with anyone. He was, in a sense, kind of above that, where he would make a statement or he would ask a question, and he, in a sense, what? He just silenced them. There's really a response. It's almost as if when Jesus speaks, they just kind of like scratch their heads and just kind of like disappear. They just kind of wander off until they come up with another idea later on. Remember that? Well, who do you say that you are to, to forgive sins? Why are you, why, why are you um, healing people on the Sabbath? And they, they kind of dissipate, and then they resurface with another idea, another thought. That's basically what's happening right here. And so as we listen to Jesus' responses, we understand the, the responsibility we have to answer for the gospel. Don't just listen to what is said. Listen to the way it is said. And we learned this morning about this one, particularly on a, on a, on a devastatingly heavy subject. We learn how to speak in response to what Jesus teaches what he tells us. Here's our text. Mark chapter 3. We pick it up in verse 20. Here it is. That extra hour of sleep that you did not get hurt you. Here you go. Then (laughs) he went home. Are you with me? Okay, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again. Then speaking, he, excuse me, speaking of Jesus. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they are saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now, although there are within these few verses several smaller kind of caveats, there's a big idea that automatically surfaces, and you probably are scratching your head with the last verse. It's verse 28, referred to as the the alpha verse in this text. It begins with this phrase, truly I say. 
It was interesting. I learned in my studies this week. I, I should have picked up on this earlier. That, that phrase, truly I say, the old King James would say, verily I say, it does not appear in any of the epistles whatsoever. No one else makes this statement other than Jesus. It doesn't appear in, 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 in the book of Acts. Truly I say, that phrase, that kind of formula of words, only appears from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is used to introduce an absolutely important or essential subject or topic. Jesus is saying there is a significant truth here. There's a representation of divine truth that you must hear. Listen to this, Jesus is saying. We know it says what in verse 28, I, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. We, we know that. We understand that. And then there's this phrase in 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, hold on a minute. Did I just read Scripture right? There is a sin that Jesus is saying, listen to me on this, I will not forgive this. It cannot be forgiven. And we say, wait, doesn't Jesus forgive all sins? Doesn't Jesus redeem any one of us? Doesn't Jesus offer, what, our rescue for anyone regardless of what we have done? Does he not extend grace and mercy to us? Does he not take our sins? It says in Scripture, separate them as far as the east is from the west. Doesn't it say that Jesus will take our sins, that God himself will offer forgiveness through the blood of Christ, and it says that he sinks them in the depths of the sea? We, we lost a, we lost an airplane in the ocean a, a couple of years ago. We just passed that date. It's two years. They lost an entire airplane in the depths of the sea. They don't even know where it went. Jesus is saying that, wait a minute, there's something here that you or I could do. But Jesus is saying, no, I will not forgive. In my studies, I, I read a, a great summary statement in regards to this particular text that it really has two purposes. Two things that we want to hold on to this morning. The first one is this, is that it is to frighten. This verse should frighten those who are comforted. And this verse should also comfort those who are frightened. I'll explain this very quickly. There are people who have no idea that they have committed this particular sin. They're oblivious, and yet they're, they're comfortable headed to the hottest of hell. They need to be what? They need to be shaken and woken up. Also, what? There are others... And perhaps you have even thought of this yourself. I know that I have at one particular point in my life. Scared to death. Maybe, maybe I have committed this one sin. Oh no. And now forever I'm damned? No, it's for those that are frightened. We now need to be comforted. Let me, let me set the stage a little bit just so that you understand and clarify. This is not as simple as one person saying one thing against the Holy Spirit. You, you utter a, a, a phrase and now you are beyond forgiveness. It's not as, as, as simple as that. It makes you understand. 
well, let's step back and get the whole high altitude view here. Let's stick with the gospel. Let's get the big picture of what Mark has been teaching and telling us about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we have been showing you and sharing with you. That what? Jesus is completely God. Jesus is completely God, and yet Jesus is also completely man. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born miraculously, his, his birth was planned and prophesied. We knew that his ministry was announced. He was baptized. We've been following this. And, and he erupts on the scene preaching this message of repentance for all that He alone is the Savior of the world, the Messiah for all mankind. He has come to save sinners, preaching good news, offering hope, healing the sick and the lost and the lame and the beggars. Jesus Christ has a desire to heal broken lives like ours. Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but is patient toward you. Praise God for that. God is patient toward every one of us. He continues, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we understand that it is only, it is only Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. It's His life, His work, His ministry, His blood that was shed, His resurrection. We see this all the way through. People have a huge problem with who Jesus claims to be. I think of C.S. Lewis, who was actually, at one point, a former atheist, denying even the very existence of God, who becomes one of the great leading Apologists of the latter part of the 20th century. He says this, and I quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this morning as we examine the subject, I I kind of pull some of the ideas from C.S. Lewis. Actually, Josh McDowell in his little, little book, More Than a Carpenter, uses the same idea that what? Jesus is either what? He's either a lunatic. He's either a liar. Or he's really Lord. I, I, I toyed with those words a little bit. And I, and I said, what? Either Jesus is crazy, a lunatic from what he claims to be. Or he's just mad. Okay. Jesus is deceptive of the very worst kind. He's a liar. Or, or what I would call he's bad. Or, or he's what? Or he really is Lord. 
He is everything that he claims to be. He is truly God. Here we go. Let's unpack this text. It says first and foremost in verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family, number one, Jesus' family think he is mad. Jesus' own family think he's what? He's crazy. Jesus' own family thinks that he is a lunatic. Look at verse 20. Then he went home and a crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. It's interesting I have found throughout the Gospels, particularly the ministry of Jesus, how often the subject of food arises for all of us. Crowds are so large, the ministry is so intense that there is no time, what, you just, you, you've been there, you just work through lunch. We can do that on occasion, but then he just, what, he just works through dinner. Okay, we can do that, but then we begin, to, and he just wor- works through breakfast again. So much so that his family comes out it says what in verse 21? When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. It's the same word that would actually be, okay, to arrest him. It's the same kinsman. So it's, it's probably his immediate family is who they're talking about. His, his mama Mary. Okay, he has half brothers and half sisters. They go out and they literally accost him. They grab him and they want to bring him back. Why? Because you need to take care of yourself here. You're not even taking care of yourself. Uh, a crazy person, a lunatic, what? Doesn't care for themselves. And, and so we know later on, we know that his mom Mary does believe. We, we know at least that James, his half-brother, writes the book of James Hebrew. But at this particular point, apparently they're not fully aware as to who their, their son is entirely. Who their half-brother is. And so they're saying he's, he's lost it. Okay, he's a little over the top here. Um, um, I, I thought it strange in such a way that oftentimes um, those in the world would look at Christians. You mean you, you get up at 8 o'clock or you get up at whatever time to be in church by 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning? That's the only day to sleep in. You, you take a significant portion, you take one-tenth of all of your income and you, you give that in the offering plates? You, 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 you sacrifice at that level? You save money and sacrifice to go on mission trips and, and to share this message? And you stand and you sing out loud together? You people are just what? You're, and you hear this all the time. You people are just, you've lost it. No, no. We have not any more than Jesus has. It's what it's it's really called it's called passion. It's called excitement. That that's exactly what Jesus Christ is modeling here for us. Which is a great reminder as far as how we even live our our own lives. Many would but very quickly raise their hands and say, I follow Jesus, but I oftentimes ask the question, Are you really following? Jesus. There's a big difference there. That, that means it's not one day a week. Some people sadly think, well, that's what I do because I follow Jesus. No, it has nothing to do. I, I call it it's seven days a week 
or you're not following Jesus. It's not a slice of the pie, okay? We have our, our, our family and we have our job and career and our little games and hobbies and habits and then we have a little church slice. No, no, it's not that. That's wrong thinking. He is the whole pie. He's everything. We sing a little chorus that Jesus is my all in all. A couple of books have kind of rattled and rocked just the, 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 the young generation. I hope they're getting it. Platt wrote radical, remember? People, people what, who follow Jesus have got to be radical. Uh, Chan wrote crazy love. I mean, if you're in love that much, you've got to be crazy, Right? No, no. It's having a passion for accomplishing. What is Jesus doing? I have one will to fulfill my Father's will. Jesus' family think that he is mad. Secondly, Jesus' critics, his critics think that he is bad, that he's a liar, that he's a deceiver that he's actually possessed by Satan. It says in verse 22, it says that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, remember they had been there earlier, and they were saying this, he is possessed. It's, it's really the, I read it as the religious Gestapo. This is the spiritual Elite. These are the these are the heavies. What we would call in our terms today, they are the big boys club. They they have been hearing of this one Jesus. There have been some locals who have been addressing it, but he is what he's he's making them walk away, scratching their heads. And so the higher ups, the, the most religious, they, they get word of Jesus' claims of Jesus' ministry. And they come down from Jerusalem and they have a summation of the entire situation and say, well, he, he obviously is demon-possessed. That's not the only reference. Mark chapter 9 in verse 34. Mark chapter 12 in verse 24. The same summation that what he does, he's doing it just by the power of Satan. Now, they cannot deny, they cannot deny what? That power exists here. Crazy people can't do miracles. Okay? There's been too many witnesses. There were lepers who are healed. There's a man with withered hands who, who is healed. There's people that were sick and diseased. There were ones that were demon-possessed and they had been freed. And, and so they cannot deny the existence of power. They just simply know that power either comes from God himself or from Satan. Satan has power. And so they are calling him a liar. They're saying he's bad. He's just deceiving that he is doing everything possessed by the name of Beelzebul, another name for Satan, connected related to the the, the word Belial, as we see in Luke chapter 11 and verse 15, who is referred to as the prince and the ruler of all demons. He's just, he's just demon-possessed. He's controlled by Satan. But the bottom line is that they know he's not crazy. 
they, they are trying to convince themselves and others that he is a liar. Is their final conclusion. Thirdly, we see what Jesus tells them all he is God. Jesus tells them all he is God. I love the wording, and we kind of think about the, the scene, the setting in between here. Um, in verse 23, and he called them to him, and he said to them in parables. So these are the big guys, the big boys, and they come down, and all of their little guard, little religious regalia, and he sees them, and he knows what they claim, and he says, come here. He calls them to, come, come over here. I know who you are. I, I know what you're doing. That, that's, that's, that's exactly what. And, and in Jesus, what he does here is he sets the entire record straight. And he does it ingeniously. He does it in a way that you and I have got to, to learn and know how we defend the gospel. He does it by asking questions and creating parables and pictures that clarify and teach and yet leave them absolutely stunned in their own human ignorance. First question is this. Is how, how can Satan cast out Satan? First question, come here. I know you, who you are. Let me ask you one question. If you think I'm demon-possessed, how can Satan cast out Satan? Why is it that Satan would seek to destroy his own work? It is very clear it's known that Jesus... Okay? The God-man has been in battle with Satan. He has what? He has freed people that were demon-possessed. He's cast out demons. He rebuked demons. He calls them out. And now you think that this, like, it's almost as if, duh, who came up with that idea? And if there's a group of them, and one of them spoke about, yeah, he's demon-possessed, it's like the other one's like, I can't believe you just said that. Like, that, who, who, what logic is there? And Jesus gives a couple very complete pictures to help explain and reveal this truth. In verse 24, it uses the image of a divided kingdom. Why would Satan seek to destroy his own work? That makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. A divided house in verses 25 and 26. Why would Satan seek to divide his own efforts? It makes no sense. Verse 27, there's this picture of a defeated strong man. Who's the strong man in this parable? Think for a moment. Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. He has power. And yet there is one who comes, and he is stronger than the strong man, who crushes and plunders and destroys all of his work. I have an older brother. He's three years older than me. He's always been bigger than me. He's always been stronger than me. He's always been faster than me. I remember as kids, and there's a, there's a couple years there, 12 to 15 or 11 to 14, okay? And, and, and I remember, I just have a nasty little temper. I would just be swinging away at him in fury, and he would just keep me. He had a big, long arm. He would just keep me out there. And he's going to push on my head once in a while, and I'd be swinging away! Missing! Until one time I met that my older brother got a little too rough with me and my dad entered the room. 
And, and he, he thought, he's Mr. Big Strong Man. Well, I'll tell you what, there is one who walked in the room who plunders the house of the strong man. Don't you ever lay a hand on your little brother like that. That's, that's what Jesus does right here. He comes in and he cleans house. He's making claim, I, I'm not lunatic, I'm not... A liar, I am everything that I said I would be. And he finally claims what a devastating doctrine that in a sense what erupts to the surface of the entire text. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man, whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. How's the conclusion here? Where's the authority come from? The authority comes from the only one who is Lord God, Jesus, fully man, fully God. Here's the conclusion. Here's the explanation here. If one has heard and has full knowledge of the good news of Jesus Christ, one has heard and they have come away with a final conclusion they have full understanding of the gospel. They have full awareness of the good news, of the message of redemption. And their final conclusion, salvation only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And their only conclusion is that yes, and that Jesus Christ himself is of the devil. Knowingly, full awareness and say, yes, Jesus, I reject his message because he is nothing but of the devil. That is the unpardonable sin. Now, if someone, in a sense, what? Makes a statement and they're not fully aware of who Jesus is. They have not been taught and told the full extent and essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is offered. Grace is extended. Mercy can be received. So it's it's not just unbelief. There's this idea that oh no, what if I it's not just unbelief. It is what it's deliberate unbelief. I have full knowledge and full understanding and I turn my way from it. And you say well, that's kind of strong. That's a clear rejection. Um, in Hebrews chapter, in Hebrews, there's a couple different places. Hebrews chapter six, Martin Lloyd Jones says one of the most perplexing passages in all of Scripture. Okay, let me read to you this very quickly in closing. We'll begin in Hebrews two, in verse three. Listen to these are. This is addressed to Jewish people. They have heard the message, okay, and they have stopped their ears. They have rejected it. Saying, saying is the one who's calling the shots, not Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. The author of Hebrews says, how, how, do, we, how do we neglect this? How do we miss this? Hebrews chapter 6 and in verses 4 and, and 5. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have 
tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. Strong language. It says there's a line that's drawn. It cannot be crossed. Hebrews in chapter 10, and we see again in verse 26 and and verse 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 29, how much, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Scripture is clear here. Scripture is explicitly clear. If there is a full awareness and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is a rebuff, but no change, no repentance, it is obvious. One's final decision to reject the hottest of hell awaits for those who reject with full knowledge. Understand that if you have rejected that, if you have rejected that, you have, you have need to be terrified. Uh, oftentimes people are though like, 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 I think I may have. If you think you may have done this, you probably have not. If you, in a sense, have received this message, you can be what? You can be most comforted. Now, we know that it is completely impossible for us to know for certain who and when, and we begin to to choose, and we pray that everyone, God is not slack concerning his witness, and he is patient toward us, that God desires that all come to repentance. We have that wonderful hope. So hold on to this, and may it be a great reminder from the ministry, the mission, the message of Jesus, of how we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Matt, why don't you come?